This is an AMI podcast. I have such respect for artists in Canada, people who live with blindness and are doing what they love. Amy Amanti takes a deep dive into the world of art and accessibility. As an artist myself who identifies with having a profound sight loss, I am so keen to explore different art mediums and have discussions with people who are trying to say something with their art. Accessing Art with Amy. New episodes drop every other Thursday. Download this AMI podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, Lawrence Gunther here, along with my guide dog. Welcome back to another episode of Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther. Today's episode is all about the outdoors in Saskatchewan. What does it have to offer besides wheat fields and prairie grass? Well, it turns out quite a bit. Miss Lily is back, of course, and she's going to be schooling us about more critters. Black-tailed prairie dogs. We've got Chris Summers from the University of Regina. A researcher there spends a lot of time in the outdoors, and we've tapped Chris to fill us in on some of his places to go in the outdoors to get away from the city and the people. Got some great tips there for sure. And I'm going to be talking about some tips for ice fishing, because Chris got me thinking about that. And there's great ways in technology and things you can do as a person with low or no vision to be very effective as an ice angler. Won't be long now before we have to put the canoe away. I'll meet you back at the campsite. Getting Schooled with Miss Lily. Hi, Lily. What do you got for us today on your tablet there? Black-tailed prairie dogs. Where do you find black-tailed prairie dogs in Canada? Well, the only place they have them in Canada is in Saskatchewan. Huh. That's the only colony It is, in eh? Canada. Yes. Why? Because uh, they've been evicted from the rest of Canada? or No, I guess they just live there. <laughs> It must be the climate, I guess. Huh, okay. So what does a black-tailed prairie dog, is that a, like a groundhog with a black tail? It's kind of, yeah, kind of looks like a groundhog, gopher, meerkat. They're in the rodent family, so they all kind of look alike. Yeah, you love rodents. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> they, can, they can weigh up to 1.3 kilograms and oh, huh? grow up to 43 centimeters. 43 centimeters, that's almost half a meter. That's a big animal. Sure. What, what color are they? brown and but then obviously their name is black-tailed prairie dog they have a black tail so brown with a black tail yeah what do they eat they eat a variety of seeds stems roots grasses weeds and the leaves of flowering plants they also eat insects okay so they're multi-carnivorous they're omnivores omnivores yes that's the word i'm looking for (laughs) thank you Mm -hmm. they dangerous no not particularly I guess only for blind people who manage to stick their foot in the hole and fall over and break their ankle. I Not- mean, <laughs> they're rodents with sharp teeth, so if they if wanted, they can be dangerous, I assume. I, do you think anyone's ever been attacked by a blacktail? No, no. No. Well, has anyone ever been attacked by a squirrel? Yes. Okay. Yeah, squirrels. We know squirrels are extremely dangerous. Uh. <laughs> no, no, they're not. This one colony of black-tailed prairie dogs living in the southern part of Saskatchewan in that very dry climate area there. And uh, but we had some black-tailed prairie dog action, didn't we? <laughs> At a truck stop. <laughs> hey, what? In we Dakota. In, in D- North Dakota. Tell, tell us, tell us what happened. Well, we were driving our, with our trailer, and we were looking for a place to stop and make sandwiches. And I spot... A sign. Stop, yeah, and, stop feed. and feed the prairie dogs. Yeah. We stopped, and 
there's a little shop there where you have to buy uh, peanuts. Yeah. Like just boiled peanuts for to feed them. In the shell. Yeah. yeah. And you buy a couple bags and they come up to you. If you like show them you have a peanut, they'll come up to you and they'll take it from your hand. In the store? No, outside. <laughs> and outside there's like so many holes full of them. There was big ones, little ones, and a really old one with gray fur that let you pet it because it was so old and lazy. Now, this was amazing because we walk out in this in this field, in the corner of the field, right right next to the truck stop and next to the highway. Like I said, holes peckered everywhere in the ground. And and they just start popping their heads out because they know what's coming. They know what to expect, didn't they? Yeah, they do. It's not necessarily like they live in captivity, these ones. They can go wherever they want. That's just where their colony is, underground. Because of the peanuts. Sure, because of the peanuts. But I think the most amazing thing was that, you know, you're not just standing back on the other side of the fence tossing peanuts to these prairie dogs. We're in the field with the prairie dogs. And next thing you know, You've got one on your shoulder. Theo's got two in his arms. <laughs> you guys want to bring him into the trailer and take him home. These things were so domesticated. They were so used to people. Habituated, I guess the term is, that they were absolutely friendly. And you, you're picking them up. And I said, don't pick them up. They could have fleas or lice or oh, disease. No, they live in North Dakota. Nothing else lives in North Dakota. No, I guess it's, uh, I mean, the long winter. Badlands. Yeah, there was the Badlands, right? Yeah, nothing, yeah. Uh, just. Nothing lost. lived there. Quite literally, only those things were able to survive there. Yeah, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty sparse it was territory. cool. It was yeah. fun. I lifted one. You put one in my arms. I held it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the old one. The old one is the only one that let you really hold it. Yeah, the other ones just wanted to get on and get off, climb up your yeah. arms, you know, get back down, get their peanut, and yeah. Oh, yeah. It did what they wanted. No but, one controlled them. But they didn't fight. They didn't fight over the peanuts. Nope, because they all knew they had enough for everyone. Yeah. There they, was no shortage of people wanting to come and feed them. Do you think they had a sort of a community spirit? Like, they weren't individual animals competing with each other. They, no. were, they had a sort of a... Well, no, it's a colony. They live a... together in a colony underground. Yeah. So they get along. They get yeah. along. They share. They take turns. Yeah, no fighting, no animosity. You know? Yeah, prairie dogs. <laughs> prairie dogs, yeah. yeah. It's very cool. Well, thanks, Lily. Mm-hmm. Time for the bucket list. We're talking to Dr. Chris Summers. He is the head of the Summers Lab at the University of Regina, doing a lot of research on wild fish, uh, fish welfare, catch and release, tracking fish, you know. And uh, uh, Chris, I want to ask you, you're, you're now a, a, a local of uh, Regina, of Saskatchewan. Talk to us about some of your favorite places in the outdoors to go hang out, sir. Like, uh, give us some of the skinny on this. Uh, I don't know the province that well. But uh, in my mind, it's just a big flat area, you know, full of wheat fields and things. But obviously, you've got more going on there. I mean, it, it captured you and kept you. Saskatchewan is a wonderful place for a variety of reasons. Now, the, uh, the part that most people see and think about is exactly what you mentioned, the flat, you know, extensive uh, agricultural area that's in uh, and around the Trans-Canada Highway that passes through Saskatchewan. So... When you're driving through, you know, from somewhere to somewhere else and you pass through Saskatchewan, that's what you think of as wheat fields, right? But um, we actually have a, a really, really cool and interesting um, diversity of ecoregions in the province. So we start off with grassland in the south, 
And as you move north, you transition through Aspen Parkland and then into Boreal Forest. And then if you go further uh, north, you get to Tega. And, uh, you know, we've got these major transitions, uh, uh, ecoregions that have different vegetation communities, different water body types, and, you know, different species, assemblages of plants and animals. And it's just a fantastic diversity within a relatively short drive. Um, so that, that was one of the things that, that captivated my interest. Nicely but, put. Nicely put. It really paints a beautiful picture in my mind. Yeah. And so what most people don't realize is that two-thirds of the province is actually forested. Oh, really? So, yeah, so that, um, you know, I grew up in, in Toronto and, and where we spent our time, um, you know, camping and stuff was in central Ontario, you know, Perry Sound, um, mm. Algonquin kind, kind Canadian of Canadian uh, shield stuff, yeah. And that kind of forest is what makes up most of Saskatchewan. Mm. So uh, really, if, if we had the right vision based on the majority of the land surface, we would think of Saskatchewan as being a forested province rather than a, uh, you know, a, a series of agricultural fields. But anyway, I'm getting off topic here. My, <laughs> my favorite places to hang out. Um, by far my favorite, if I want some solitude and some sort of, um, let's, let's call it soul-searching or, or reflection kind of time, is to go to Grasslands National Park, which is in the southwest of the province. Uh, the West Block is my favorite. It's near a small town called Valmarie, Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, a shining example of what the prairies of, of Saskatchewan used to look like prior to European settlement and the clearing of most of the native prairie for, for agricultural production. So native grass, uh, rolling hills, just uh, as far as you can see, you've got bison roaming around there. Uh, we've got black-tailed prairie dogs that don't exist anywhere else in Canada. Uh, you've got um, some reptiles that are also um, animals that I research, so uh, prairie rattlesnakes, bull snakes, eastern yellow-bellied racer, uh, that are, are present there. Uh, the uh, shorthorn lizard, which is an endangered species, is present there. Uh, lots of fossils and neat crystals on the ground. And it's really a place where you can go, uh, you can walk backcountry. You don't necessarily need to stay on a, on a marked trail. And there's just a lot of space and a lot of very, very uh, cool and interesting um, wildlife that you can uh, lose yourself in. So that's uh, kind of my favorite place to go and, and find myself, for, for lack of a better term. Sounds amazing, and those prairie dogs are, are pretty funny little critters. That's for sure. You know? Oh yeah, they're they're hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're not afraid. They're not afraid no, of people. They're not really afraid, and they they will yell at you. They give you that whistle that yeah. basically says, uh, "I know you're here," and that's close enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've been up to Lake Athabasca, and there's that's like a desert up there, right? I mean, you got rolling sand dunes up there. Yeah, so this is, again, another spectacular kind of diverse region that people don't think about, but Lake Athabasca and the Athabasca sand dunes are a place like no other in Canada. And in fact, so much so, there are some endemic plant species there that don't exist anywhere else in the world. Wow. Uh, which is just mind-boggling. Wow. And that's uh, just here in the, in the you know, it's, we, we share it with Alberta, uh, but uh, that's just, you know, a unique Canadian place, and uh, Saskatchewan is a big part of that, so... I think that Lake Athabasca is one of the, it's the ninth largest lake, freshwater lake in Canada, but it's one that pretty much flies under the radar for most people. I mean, no one thinks about that lake. It's just, it, it's just totally left alone for the most part. I mean, there's a few uh, First Nations communities on it for sure and a couple fish camps, but, you know, and I think they did have a, um, a commercial lake trout fishery there for a year or two. And then that didn't pan out very well, but it's it's just a lake that's been left on its own for the most part. Yeah, well, it's so difficult to get to. I guess that's the 
Yeah. That's the saving grace and maybe the uh, the curse at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's right up there, right up there on the uh, on the northern border of uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and, and the southern end of uh, Northwest Territory. So it, it's up there for sure. Right. Well, you did also mention that uh, you know a place that I like to fish, and I, I thought uh, carefully about that because it. Yeah. You know, I, f- I feel a very strong connection to all of my study sites because I'm, I'm super interested in what the fish are doing in those particular lakes, but. When given the choice, uh, you know, when I take my boys ice fishing, um, you know, the the place that I really like to go, and I, like I said, ice fishing is my favorite. I like summer fishing too, but for some reason, ice fishing just speaks to me in a different way. And uh, there's a small lake uh, near a town called Labret in in southern Saskatchewan. There's a chain of lakes there near um, the biggest town will be Fort Capel, and there's four lakes in a row. And uh, Mission Lake is the the third lake in the chain. It's the smallest one, but there's an old uh, French community called Labret there that has a beautiful uh, cathedral right on the shore of the lake and it's uh, relatively uh, it's less popular for ice fishing so you can find you know big parts of the lake that there's no one else on and uh, we always catch something there uh, not usually very big fish but you know, beautiful young walleye and uh, it's just a fantastic place to uh, to experience ice fishing in my opinion so uh, that would be my my choice for for favorite uh, fishing hole uh, and how far is that from Regina? That would be roughly 80 kilometers from Regina, so oh, less wow. than an hour's drive. Yeah, that's perfect. I mean, an easy di- drive out with the kids. They're not going to get too bored and, uh, and drive back the same day. Do, are, do, right. you, do you keep a high, a high hut out there all winter, or do you have your own hut? Uh, no, actually, I, uh, I use a portable. So yeah. I have um, uh, quite a big one, actually, that uh, gives us enough room for a family <laughs> to, okay. to be inside of and uh i like to move around a bit so you know we're we're often um doing work on a particular lake and we'll move from site to site and uh part recreational fishing is something we incorporate into that and then if we are uh fishing as a family you know, sometimes we want to go you know to our our favorite spot and other times we might want to go somewhere and target burbot or you know depending on the timing of the season and so uh i like to stay flexible and uh and, and stick with the pop-up yeah, I hear you. I hear you. It just, you know, it gives you that flexibility to, to move with the seasons because you know, okay, at this time of year, this it's a good place to be over here and target that kind of species versus, you know, a big wooden shack. I mean, moving that, something like that is just like a nightmare. It's a, it's a day's job every time, right? And then, <laughs> then yeah, you got to well, worry about security too. Like, uh, you know, who's gonna who's going to that shack when I'm not around? Yeah, lots of folks here use old campers and they'll put them out on the ice and, you know, they're a little easier to move around. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting idea. But again, it, you're you're looking at a... Heavy. You gotta, when you got to move it, if there's a lot of snow on the lake or whatever, yeah. it's it, it could come with some challenges. So I, li- I like the pop-up just because it gives you that ultimate flexibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like you've acclimatized to the Saskatchewan uh, environment there, sir. Good for you. Well, I did go, I had a sabbatical back in 2017, and I dedicated that sabbatical to uh, expanding winter research. And lots of people thought I was nuts, you know, the idea of a professor going on sabbatical, you picture them going to the south of France and, you know, sipping wine by the beach or something. Yeah. Uh, but no, I went to uh, Frozen Lakes in Saskatchewan and spent my time out there, so maybe I'm, uh, <laughs> I have a couple screws loose or something. <laughs> if you're going to live in Canada, you gotta you got to appreciate winter, otherwise you're in trouble. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's no doubt about that. You, thank you so much. You know, uh, I, I please carry on with this important research and the, and the findings. You know, we're, the fishing community across Canada is, is watching and listening and, and uh, paying attention to the, your posts on, on your Facebook page there. 
And uh, I think it's it's spurring a lot of conversation, and it's good. It's good information. It's it's timely information. You know, we all want to be considered ethical anglers. We all want to be feel good about what we're doing, and uh, you know, catch a fish, eat a fish, and let a fish go, and know that we're whether whatever we're doing, we're doing it the right way and in the best well interest of the welfare of the fish. Even, you know, dispatching a fish to, to, you know, for food, right? I mean, how often do you get to read tips about how to, the best way to to euthanize a fish? I mean, there's not a lot of information out there on that. It's always something you just learn from, from the old guy, right? You do it like That's this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but is it the best way? You know, we, you know, there's a lot we still need to learn. Absolutely. Yeah. We're always learning, and I think uh, we should always be interested in learning as much as we can. Yeah. I agree. It's a it's a nonstop process, and uh, and our kids are going to look back at uh, and tell stories about us at some point and go, you know, man, when I went fishing with my dad, he was so backwards. <laughs> yeah, now we're the old guys. <laughs> yeah, we're we're the old guys now. Yeah, we're 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 out of touch with reality. <laughs> well, not quite. Let's not let's not let that happen. And yeah, no, we won't let that happen. Yeah. We'll, we'll make sure of that. Good stuff, sir. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Outdoor tips and tech. <laughs> Some outdoor tips and tech. You know, we've got both. And I'm going to start off with some uh, outdoor uh, adventure audio that I recorded the last year with my guide dog, Moby, my former guide dog, Moby. What a great dog he was. They're all great dogs, aren't they? Anyways, we're out there on the ice, and I'm playing with some tech. I'm playing with some low-tech, high-tech, and I thought you might want to listen to this. It gives you a little feel for what it's like out there. Hey, folks, Lawrence Gunther here. I'm on the lake with my guide dog, Moby, and I'm going to do what I like to do best, and that's go feel the bite. But first, I have to find my holes. I drilled earlier today, and how does a blind guy find his holes on the ice? Well, I got some talking GPS that's going to make it happen. Let's get going. Come on, Moby. On a butt. Attaboy. 26 feet, and I think we found the hole. Listen. Two feet, two o'clock. Two feet at two o'clock. So it must be right around here somewhere. And I feel this. Oh, there it is. Two feet, two o'clock. Perfect. Feeling the bite with my Fraybill tip. I'm doing it a little differently though. I've got this Blue Tips Bluetooth wireless transmitter, and that's going to tell me when I get a bite. So I'm going to put on this receiver on. When I get a bite and the flag flips up, it sends a signal. And wherever I am, you know, I could be in my hut, I could be in my Freeville flip over, I'm going to get that signal. I'll set it back up, put that down. There we go. That'll stop in a second. Pop this in my pocket. There we are, like that. The other thing I need to do is when I want to check my tip up, I need to find it. So I've got here a little wireless sound emitter, and I'm going to put that on a little carabiner. I'm going to just clip that right here to the uh, spring, and I'll put that right there on the snow. So when I want to find it, I'll just trigger this little key fob here, and that'll tell me when I where my tip-up is. Hopefully I'll catch a fish. Got my hole, got my Fraybill straight line out there, got a little minnow down below, got my minnows, dogs all set. Let's get warm, Moby. Let's catch some fish. Wish me luck. 
Well, there you go. You know, it, it's it's fun to be out on the ice and finding holes, finding anything on the ice is uh, is is always a challenge, right? Because you know you're just surrounded by just areas of snow and ice, and it all feels more or less the same underfoot. You know, you might follow a snowmobile trail, and but there can be many of those, and uh, you never know which one you're on. So having some orientation, having an idea where you are and where you need to get to, and how to get back. And how to find your things, because if you put anything down out there, you put your tackle bag down, you put, you know, like I was using tip-ups, it's a self-contained fishing mechanism. It just drops the line down on a spool. It's just a holder with a flag. And when the fish bite, it triggers the flag to pop up. Well, that's great if you're looking around, but I use these Bluetooth tip-ups and uh, they just beep my iPhone. So my iPhone goes off, beep, beep, beep. I can be inside. I don't need to be right there. If I'm five feet away, it'll go off. Or if I'm 50 feet away, it'll go off. And when you're ice fishing, you can use a couple of these. So you can set two of them up. But I set one up and then I, I usually move away about five or six feet. And then I'll fish in another hole just with my hand. And that's what I was doing at the end there. Just one of those little ice fishing rods, two and a half feet long. Little minnow at the end inside my little shelter. Keep the wind away. You know, I always fish with some sort of windbreak. And these little portable shelters that have these pop-up tents built onto them, you can pull them around on your, by yourself with a rope. Longer rope, the better. I always use like a 20-foot rope. That way you're not lifting the front end of the sled off the ice as you're pulling it. It's just sliding along nicely on the bottom of the, of the plastic sled. The weight is distributed nicely. It's not digging in at the back. It's easier to pull with a longer rope. And when I get to where I want to go, I've got my own comfortable seat. I flip up the tent maybe halfway and just use it as a windbreak. I always position it so that it's going to block the wind from hitting my back. That way I can fish with my hands, my bare hands, because I'm always feeling the bite with my bare hands. You know, you see ice fishers out there with their big snowmobile mitts on and they're just watching the tip of their fishing rod to see if it jiggles and they know they got a bite just by watching the tip of their fishing rod. That's not possible if you can't see it. So you want to feel that bite, which means keeping warm. Now, if, it, if the temperature starts to drop, like at the end of the day, or if the wind's picking up and it's really cold, I'll flip that shelter right over, and then I'll bring a little propane heater, and I'll direct that propane heater up myself. I'll take my coat off, or, you know, get comfortable. It gets quite warm in there and keeps your hands warm so you can keep feeling the bite. I've got one of these shelters that fits two people as well, so you can sit in there with a buddy and even room for the dog. So I'll bring a little blanket for him, and he can curl up in the corner and keep an eye on us and watch what's going on. Dogs love it when the fish come through the ice. You know, ice fishing, it may sound like, uh, you know, it's a drinking sport, and uh, there are people who see it that way. But I don't. I think it's a way to get out on the ice, to play with some technology, to connect with some critters from underneath the ice. Maybe even bring home a meal for dinner, you know, for the family. If you get lucky and you got a license, so uh, try it out. You know, it really is just another thing to do in the winter. A lot of fun. Miss Lily sure schooled us on the black-tailed prairie dogs. I had no idea there was only one colony of these animals living in Canada. And uh, Lily was telling us about the uh, feeding of the black-tailed prairie dogs in North Dakota. That was quite interesting. We have so much diversity in Canada. And that was brought out by uh, Dr. Chris Summers as well in the uh, bucket list segment when he talked about the different regions and how they differ so much across Saskatchewan. You know, starting with the sort of very arid, dry, almost scrub desert kind of climate in the south, going up into the boreal forest. 
and uh, all the way up to Lake Athabasca. That got me thinking about uh, a segment I did in a documentary I, uh, I wrote and produced about eight years ago now called What Lies Below. It played on AMI-TV for about a year and a half, and it played on CBC Documentary Channel for three years. And I went up to Lake Athabasca because I got a tip about all the uranium mines up there and how, you know, we shut them all down and we didn't really shut them down. I wanted to go up and visit Uranium City. This was a thriving city of 5,000 people. I got to go in there. I went over on a boat and then the mayor of Uranium City picked me up at the boat launch and drove me into town. Now, there was him and about five other people left in the city. And he lent us a truck, and a, a Suburban, to drive around and do some filming. And it was like a ghost town, like houses that were built in the 1980s, just abandoned. Schools with playgrounds, hospitals, churches, libraries, gas stations, as if it was just abandoned the other day. You know, it was all still standing, and you, know, you could see it starting to deteriorate. But the mayor thought that someday, you know, they'll need uranium again, and they'll come back and reopen the mine. So he was hanging on and just buying everything up. He, he owned everything in that town, pretty much, you know. But it was so sad to see how um, a company can just walk away and just destroy an economy like that. You know, a single industry town. That's what you got there. And we have a lot of those in Canada. You know, when the industry shuts, there's nothing left says something about diversity and, uh, and making sure you're connected to nature because, you know, there's one thing you can always count on in Canada, and that's the environment. If we take care of that, it's always going to be around, and there's always going to be some interest in that. Like Lake Athabasca is a beautiful place. When you go up there and you're in a boat and you see a sign on the shore with a big radiation symbol, do not enter this bay because there's a leaky mine, you know, spewing radioactive sediment into the bay, into the lake, and that's getting into the fish, and those fish swim in and out of the bay. So, you know, are you getting one of those radioactive popsicle fishes, or are you getting one that's safe to eat? You don't know. So it sort of takes away from the, uh, the value, the uh, tourism value of the properties up there. But there's, it's still a big, beautiful lake for sure, and, it, and the uranium mines may have been, you know, occupying parts of the uh, shoreline and spread out around there. But they're cleaning them up now. The Saskatchewan government's busy at work cleaning them up covering them over because they have no choice they have to do something i don't want to end on that note but i do want to say that the the tips and tacks section of the ice fishing there is some pretty cool stuff out there like i was demonstrating you know these blue tips uh tip up things for your flags you can get five of them working on one cell phone you can sit in your ice hut and you go oh tip up number four went off and uh, you can fish like that, you know, with uh, just be the electronic master and, and have all your buddies running around and checking your tip-ups for you while you're just keeping track of the, uh, the bites and tracking the whole thing, what time the bites happen, you know, how frequently they happen throughout the day, at what times of the day, log all that stuff, do a little bit of analysis, so that the next time you know exactly what time of the day to show up to for maximum fishing. It's a little tip there, and I uh, hope you enjoyed all that, you guys. We'll be back next week with another episode of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. In the meantime, Lily, uh, Lily sends her best, and we'll talk again soon. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. We're dropping new episodes every Friday, folks. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments on your podcast provider's site so other people will learn about our new show.
Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions on email at feedback at ami.ca or on Twitter at AMI-audio. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, Sam Robinson, and Paula Deneen. They're my technicians. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.